Welcome to another installation of the Pullback Climate Book Club. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> I'm Kristen Pugh and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hey! And uh, we are also proud members of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. And today we are very excited to be talking about Naomi Klein's classic in climate literature, this changes everything. Capitalism versus the climate. I think that's the... <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> we have our finger on the pulse of like current events. Like here we are reading this 10-year-old book. <laughs> it's so good though. Like it holds up. Let's hear your synopsis. So this is like a pretty wide-ranging book on climate change. Basically, the argument is, first of all, I mean, we, I think a lot of us have heard this argument already, but it's the argument that to fight climate change, we really have to go to the roots of capitalism and that capitalism and extractivism are big drivers of climate change. And also fundamentally, in order to sort of fight back, we really need to not just sort of have these incremental policy debates, but we need to have social movements that are fighting for big value changes um, against sort of like the neoliberal order. So it's a really like wide ranging book. Um, I think in many ways sort of sets the tones for, for how activists have talked about climate change for the last decade. One thing that I find really interesting about it is that climate books tend to have a pretty short shelf life because shit changes so fast. But this, you know, a decade later, it holds up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually I'm I'm a little I'm a little annoyed at myself for not having read it sooner, but having read it now, it's just as prescient as it was a decade ago, which uh, we were texting each other, makes us sad. <laughs> like, <laughs> Kristen texted me and she's like, wow, she's talking about decade zero a lot and it's making me sad. And it's like, yeah. Yeah, that gives, we're like decade what, minus one now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really nice to be able to read something, especially after like following the climate optimism book we read last time. It's really nice to read something that has like actual like solutions that will address the root causes of not only climate change, but like social inequality that comes with capital. And I loved it. I think everybody should read it. If if you have the stomach for a 600-page climate book, this is the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you'll get a fair... If you want something shorter, a year after this book came out, there was a sort of coalition in which Naomi Klein was a central component that came up with what's called the Leap Manifesto. So if you want just the policy headlines, you can... Google the Leap Manifesto and that'll give you sort of a general sense. But I thought this was really good for like articulating the failures of liberal environmentalism in a really detailed way. And, and some of the sort of decision points on which we've already fucked up. And for me, I think that's really useful in terms of understanding. There's lots of evidence that incrementalism has not worked. And in fact, you know, the decision of some groups like the Environmental Defense Fund to really sort of cozy up to capital in hopes of incremental change, they did not work <laughs> and really undermined the movement. And so let's not do that in this decade, I think is it the idea. Yeah, no, it's really cool the way that we can kind of look back on what, because all of the things that she's writing about were very current for the year 2014. So she's quoting things from 2012 a lot, from 2013, from 2014 some. And it's a little disheartening because, I mean, Kristen, you said this to me while we were reading it. You're like, wow, look at all these things that she predicted that definitely happened. And look at all these <laughs> things that she said that if we did right away would solve our problems that we haven't even started doing. And 
I mean, in that way, like, I think this book would have been a lot more hopeful when it came out because it's like, wow, look at all these amazing solutions that will create like a better world, not just for our environment, but for like our society. And here we are a decade later. And um, I mean, I will say on the plus side of that, I felt like I had already read this book when I was reading it. I was like, wow, I already know like a lot of what she's talking. I mean, she phrases everything so beautifully and like it's so succinct and she puts together ideas in ways that I hadn't really considered, but it all felt familiar. So I think because this book permeated the culture so much, I, I it does leave me feeling a little hopeful because I'm like, okay, it's been a decade since this came out and we are seeing the narrative change and like and it's kind of like a cultural touchstone. It's like when you watch an old movie and you're like, oh, that's where this reference came from. <laughs> this cultural reference that everyone makes. I'm like, oh, I didn't know this song was from Singing in the Rain. And you're just like watching it for the first time. And you're like, oh, wow, now I understand the culture more. So I love this book. Yeah, there was a really strong sense of that. I think that's a really good way to put it, Kyla. Yeah, I also had not read this book before, but I feel like I had in some ways. Um <laughs> It's actually, I felt really comforted to read this book and be like, okay, here we go. A 600-page how-to guide on how to fix our problems. And it's been around and other people have read it and are already working on it. And that's where this narrative is coming from. And it's just like kind of a relief, especially after that climate optimism book that I hated so much that we read last time. Because I was like, this is not offering any real solutions. And then he like literally called out this book by Naomi Klein in his book to be like, oh, they don't offer the the how. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is 600 pages of how. <laughs> like, Yeah, I, I was thinking about that, actually, because, yeah, I mean, that was definitely a point that we were thinking about when we were talking about that book. And I think it's emblematic of how sort of like technocrats fail to understand arguments like what, what the argument that Naomi Klein was making. Because it's true that this book does not have anything on what the appropriate bike lanes would be or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or the kinds of like congestion taxes or those like sort of incremental policies. But what she's saying is that you actually undercut your argument when you're, you're constraining yourself to that sort of like incrementalist box. And in reality, what we need to do to solve the climate crisis is to understand that worse stuck within this ideological project that is killing us. And in order to come to a solution, you actually need to sort of take a baseball bat to all of the assumptions <laughs> that are like naturalized within that ideological framework. So if you don't get that, then I can see how you would think there's no solutions um, presented in this book, but they're really are very fundamental solutions from which you can draw a pretty clear paradigm of action. And the Leap Manifesto has some like concrete solutions that are associated with that. Some of which exist today, uh, some of which do not, and that we could work on. <laughs> like your analogy of like taking a baseball bat to our current neoliberal institutions, uh, This I think this quote really sums up like, and it's right near the beginning, um, kind of her whole idea and your analogy was so good, but it says, they know very well that ours is a global economy created by and fully reliant upon the burning of fossil fuels and that a dependency that foundational cannot be changed with a few gentle market mechanisms. It requires heavy duty interventions, sweeping bans on polluting activities, deep subsidies for green alternatives, pricey penalties for violations, new taxes, new public work programs, reversals of privatizations, the list of ideological outrages goes on and on. 
everything in short that these think tanks, which have always been public proxies for far more powerful corporate interests, have been busily attacking for decades. And this is like all part of like what she's talking about with like the incremental change and how like that we can't rely on that, you guys. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, she had another quote that I really liked. So the it here is capitalism. So capitalism, it wins every time we accept that we have only bad choices available to us, austerity or extraction, poisoning or poverty, which I think is really true. And it goes down to sort of like the way that we framed these fundamental debates. I mean, she talks a lot about like hydraulic fracturing in her book because that was a big sort of political moment at the time. But you can think about really any kind of extraction project and the way in which communities are sort of, they're set up so they don't really have good options. Like you can think about indigenous uh, groups and indigenous communities and extraction projects is a really good example, right? Uh, These are communities that are pushed into pretty abject poverty. And so then when like big oil or big mining or whatever comes into town, their only sort of solution is, you know, they can resist. And in a lot of cases have been, um, but like Sometimes taking the scraps from extractive companies can be pretty attractive when you're facing just scarcity to the extent that these communities are, but that that's a political choice. Um, And it's one that really sort of like reinforces the existing order. So we need to get out of these kinds of debates and start to think bigger or we'll never win. This is also another argument that I thought was really good in the book is this. There's so there's often a narrative, particularly from sort of like liberal climate perspectives that is like the problem is that individuals are selfish and they're not willing to give up consumption and to make collective sacrifices. And I think Klein quite effectively makes the argument that we're we're willing to make these kinds of collective sacrifices all the time. Regular people are constantly asked to sacrifice their pensions, to sacrifice. I mean, we could talk about, she didn't talk about this in the book, but like real wage losses due to inflation. That's a kind of sacrifice that We're just being asked to sort of eat higher interest rates right now um, in like the spirit of the collective good. And that there's been this steady process throughout neoliberalism of people getting less and less and the public sphere getting smaller and smaller. And we've been constantly asked to sort of sacrifice in the name of austerity. But like the people very rarely get anything from that. And so if we can ask people to sacrifice for something that will actually make their lives better. Um, I think people, she's saying, and I would agree with her, will be very willing to sort of take those sacrifices in the name of climate change. The problem is just that, like, we're asking people to, like, kick themselves in the shins for something that they know is not going to solve the problem and is just going to leave them more insecure. So, like, the, the actual lack of vision is a huge part of the problem. Yeah. And it's not like the vision isn't out there. I mean, look at Klein's work, right? Look at the Leap Manifesto. The vision exists. It's just that the people who we are listening to the most right now aren't reiterating that narrative. I mean, even even right now in Canada, the New Democrats are like the furthest left we go. And they're trying to out-liberal the liberals right now, right? Like they're just, they're not offering policy solutions that fundamentally change how this our society would work and they're just offering more of the same and so if nobody's talking about like sure maybe that won't win them an election but like we have to start the conversation somewhere someone has to be talking about it and right now especially in Canadian politics it's just not happening 
And, you know, I think the election of Olivia Chow in Toronto suggests that it might win elections, that our systems are fundamentally broken in so many ways. Our housing crisis is getting, it's getting so untenable that like there are students paying a thousand bucks a month to sleep on a mattress in the kitchen of somebody's apartment on the floor. Like that is in no way a reasonable solution to the housing crisis. And yet it is a way that like, I can't remember which province just did this, but there is a provincial government that has decided to subsidize a group to create an app basically for people to sleep on mattresses on the floor in houses or to sleep like in an extra room rather than building more houses. (laughs) (laughs) ah, Our healthcare system is like super fucked. And rather than trying to push systemic solutions to that, A lot of political leaders are opening the door to privatization, even though there's like a huge amount of evidence showing that that actually worsens the problem. Like, I I feel as though so many systems are so broken right now that you could quite feasibly make the argument to the general public that like, yes, I'm going to raise taxes. It's going to be mostly for the wealthy and for corporations. There might be some pain for you, but you know what? We're going to fix all these problems that have been broken for 30 years. And I think a lot of people would get on board with that sort of expansive vision. Yeah, like I, 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 Kristen and I, like you and I both grew up in (laughs) Edmonton. And I know a lot of like truckers and oil workers. And they're not like the villains that are being like, we're being pitted against each other. But it's like, I I just hung out with my, uh, with an old family friend who has been driving trucks, like long haul trucks for his whole life. And we agree on everything. Like we agree (laughs) on everything. Like, I don't know how he votes, but he's just, he's a very typical guy uh, who's driving truck. Like you could probably picture him. And like, we just need a vision that like, connects us all. You know what I mean? And instead we're getting divisive politics and I don't know, it sucks. (laughs) And it's scary because increasingly people are starting to slide into fascism because it is a program that can present some sort of collective view. It's a very evil one, but it's becoming more attractive for a fair number of people. And I think that is a direct consequence of the kind of like small-mindedness of our political leaders to date. Because if all you're pushing are half solutions that people know won't work and buck passing, pretending that things aren't in your jurisdiction when they really are, people will realize that you're not all that interested in solving their problems. And so they're going to look for alternatives that are. And if there aren't progressive alternatives, then people open up their possibilities to other things. And that's really scary. Yeah, because we're all getting so disenchanted and we're looking for something else. And if the only alternative is Donald Trump saying that he's going to tear the system down, it's like, well, we all agree the system should be torn down. I just wish there was someone other than him saying it that we could choose. You know what I mean? Like, We're not so different, and most people realize that. Everyone wants to be a hero in their own story. The fact that we're all being told to hate each other, like, it just seeps into our brains, especially if that's the Facebook group you hang on sharing, like, really (laughs) funny memes about how shitty these other people are. You know what I mean? Like, it's just toxic. But, like, to go back to what you were saying about how... (sighs) Naomi Klein does a really good job of pointing out how difficult it is to do fundamental change. And I, I really liked this quote she says where... 
Changing the Earth's climate in ways that will be chaotic and disastrous is easier to accept than the prospect of changing the fundamental growth-based profit-seeking logic of capitalism. We probably shouldn't be surprised that some client scientists are a little spooked by the radical implications of their own research. Most of them were quietly measuring ice cores, running global climate models, and studying ocean acidification only to discover, as Australian climate expert and author Clive Hamilton puts it, that in breaking the news of the depth of our collective climate failure, they were unwittingly destabilizing the political and social order. And it just... I really like how how she considers everybody kind of in in the chain of how climate change will affect us and and she's like the, these scientists are not trying to fuck with you right like <laughs> this is the last thing they wanted they just want to be measuring their ice cores that's all they want they don't want to be in political debates <laughs> yeah nobody wants to be the guy that like is the first one to see the asteroid coming for the planet and being like hey guys i've got some really bad news no one wants that you know what i mean like and I just thought that was a really good point. Like, not only is it really difficult to fundamentally change capitalism, but it's scary for the people who have to say it, right? Especially if they're living comfortably. Scientists usually live pretty comfortably. Yeah, and also, like, scientists as a whole generally go into those jobs because they don't really want to be doing, like, public advocacy work. They want to be doing their, like, <laughs> niche experiments that are sort of oftentimes like living a more quiet life, you know, <laughs> like they don't want to be in the public eye. That's why they become scientists for the most part. Another thing that I thought was a really important and good point in this book is the argument that part of the reason climate change has been so difficult for us to solve is just the bad timing of it all. <laughs> we started to talk about it around the same time that like Reaganomics was really coming into power and that has hamstrung our ability to address climate change. And she does a really good job of sort of talking about the 70s as this era where we passed an immense amount of environmental legislation. And so it really ha it has been possible to solve big environmental problems in the past. It's just that We've been in this political era that makes it very difficult to regulate. And also the like the argument that the free trade system was sort of being developed around the same time as climate change. And at the time, decision makers really chose to prioritize trade liberalization over planetary solutions. I actually really liked the way that she was kind of pointing out that we need to have better solutions, which is something we've been talking about. But I really liked this particular example. Uh, she says, what we know is this. Trade unions can be counted on to fiercely protect jobs, however dirty, if these are the only jobs on offer. On the other hand, when workers in dirty sectors are offered good jobs in clean sectors, like the former auto workers uh, at the Silfab factory in Toronto, and are enlisted in, uh, as active participants in a green transition, then progress can happen at, a, at lightning speed. And it's just, we need options. <laughs> like, invest, take some of the billions of dollars in subsidies that we're giving to the oil industry and invest it in green energy and create green jobs. Like, we've been talking about this for a decade. Longer, really, but. <laughs> and then you've got Alberta just doubling down. Like, I can't. Oh, I know. Did you see the news? They're pausing all renewable energy projects now. 
Is that what it is? I saw like a headline or something on TikTok came across my feed that was like Alberta. And I'm like, oh, I don't have the space for this right now. So they're pausing all green energy projects under what pretense? <laughs> like their environmental impacts, if you <laughs> if you believe that, <laughs> which I do not. Literally like a page later, this is what Klein says about stuff like that. Similar research in Canada has found that an investment of $1.3 billion, the amount the Canadian government spends on subsidies to oil and gas companies, could create 17 to 20,000 jobs in renewable energy, public transit, or energy efficiency, six to eight times as many jobs as that money generates in the oil and gas sector. So here they are like, talking about jobs, 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 jobs. And it's like, you want to create more jobs? Green energy is where it is. Like, or just a green transition, like public transit workers. Yeah. Or just make existing jobs, good jobs. Because part of the reason you have such strong resistance from the oil and gas sector workers, I mean, I think part of it is like this experience of half solutions and a sense that like, if they're transitioned out, there might not necessarily be good jobs. But it's also that like, Oil and gas jobs are one of the very few like good middle class jobs that are are really sort of like an artifact of like the post-war period and that have been really disappearing at a fast pace. So I would understand like as I mean, my my dad is retired now, but he was like an oil refinery worker. I can understand an immense amount of trepidation around giving that up, knowing that most jobs in the economy today like put you as part of the precariat. They're not going to pay as well. They're not going to have benefits that are as good. They're not going to have the same amount of security. There are solutions to that. This problem is a policy problem, but it's, it's understandable why as a regular person, you might be opposed to climate action and willing to sort of like buy into an ideology that makes you sleep well at night doing that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And I mean, it's like we were talking about with like, if there's no other choices as well, right? Like, it's hard to imagine a better choice when, you know, you've got especially politicians on the right saying that if we try to do a transition, you won't have any money left. And like, whose fault is that? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I I don't want to work in oil and gas. And like if I want to, I like working on my feet. It's a thing I love to do. But if any job where you're working on your feet that isn't in oil and gas is usually a job that doesn't pay enough to pay your rent anymore. So like think about the pandemic with grocery store workers or food servers or anyone in the front line working like quote unquote, like not real jobs. Like those are real jobs. Why can't we just treat them like real jobs? What if I just want to be a grocer? Like that's that shouldn't be something I, I'm ashamed of. Yeah. And being a grocer used to be a job where you'd be able to, on a single income, buy a house and provide for your family. These are policy choices that we make to like allow companies to make people so insecure and to pay so little. She also used a lot of really powerful examples of how climate change happens. And I know that it's not something that we really, like especially listeners to this podcast, don't really need. But I really like the example of the island of Nauru, where they started mining. Like, I think they just had a bunch of natural resources. So they're mining and the inside of their island has been basically like absolutely destroyed. And now with sea levels rising, it's starting like the island itself is starting to disappear. And it's just 
the detail in this book was incredible at like just re- like bringing everything together on like a global scale. I also really liked there was a whole chapter about indigenous relations, uh, which felt very progressive for the time that this book came out where she was like, why don't we just give the land back? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah, it's true. And I think the uh, Nauru example was also, it was really good because she was highlighting an example. Like Nauru was touted for a significant period of time as this like success of development. And, you know, eventually when sort of they'd been mining out, uh, there came to be like a crisis. And so it's a really good example of how this sort of like extractive Hitching your wagon to like extractive capitalism can be good for a short period of time for people, but in the long run, it really sort of like erodes our ability to meet the conditions for life because we live on a planet. (laughs) (laughs) We need like clean air and oxygen to like function. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought her geoengineering chapter was also really good. Oh, I loved that chapter. Carry on. (laughs) I was just going to say the like listeners of the podcast that listen to our recent geoengineering episode. I think you'll find a lot of the same arguments as were in her book, but I just thought she did a really good job of pulling together how truly risky these things are. And also, I mean, I think like her point that most geoengineering actually has its roots in warfare is like a really, I think that provides really useful context, right? This idea that it was supposed to be a weapon and now we're treating it as like this salvation. Yeah. Like it's originally conceived of as a last resort. Why are we going to it first? Yes. And she uses this term arrogant ignorance to refer to geoengineering. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was really, really helpful. And it sums up not only the problems with geoengineering, that, you know, we're we're really arrogant to sort of believe we can play with these complicated systems and not really fuck up our ecology because there's so much we don't know about how the planet works. But arrogant ignorance, I honestly think, sums up this entire era of politics, <laughs> like... Yeah, and the worst part is, like, there's no excuse for the ignorant part. Like, there's so many, like, scientists that are like, hey, did you know that if you do this, the polar ice caps will melt and then th- that will ca- cause this cascading effect? And, like, politicians are getting these briefings, they know, and then they're like, oh, no, I don't I don't want to know that. I'm going to pretend it doesn't happen. And it's like, what is happening But I mean, it's also like anytime you're playing with something on the scale of, you know, cloud seeding or shooting sulfate into the air or anything like that, we're talking about really complicated mechanisms that we don't understand. And it is extremely arrogant to think that we can think of all of the problems that could go wrong. This honestly is like my main complaint with nuclear energy as well is like, It's just too much human hubris. We're not good at keeping infrastructure around for 25 years. We're not really good at predicting like fairly simple impacts in our ecology. So why would we think we have sort of like the hubris to be able to like create a planetary thermostat that also gets rid of blue skies? Why would that be a thing we think would be okay? Yeah. I mean, the crazy thing about didn't two nuclear reactors just get approved in like Ontario? Probably. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. The the wild thing to me about stuff like that is that like storms are going to get worse and like we can't guarantee that we'll be able to protect the infrastructure that we do have even if we make it really well, right? Like we're going to have more floods, we're going to have more storms, we're going to have more fires. I mean, I say we're going to. We are having more storms, more floods and more fires. And so like where would you even put these things that you can guarantee they won't have a meltdown? Yeah, and we're increasingly finding that like the scale of these events is so much more vast than we're used to predicting. Like I think BC's experience with wildfires this year, there have been several instances where there have had to be very like on the fly evacuations where people are literally running away or are being like airlifted by helicopter to get out of the the burn zone and like at least 3 wildfire fighters have died this year across the country trying to fight the fires. So like this notion that we can, that like traditional engineering regulations, you know, sensibilities are going to be enough to protect our infrastructure. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and speaking of like arrogant ignorance, she has a whole chapter called No Messiahs that is all about how And it's so frustrating because this book came out 10 years ago, but how we look to billionaires to save us. And she has a whole section just on like Bill Gates, who I think we should actually hate read his book. Um, I I was thinking about that. (laughs) If we do, we have to make Robbie do it too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, listeners, if you want the three of us, including Robbie, to hate read Bill Gates' book, please uh, get us on x.com. Is that the new Twitter? Speaking of billionaires who are not messiahs. (laughs) (laughs) But in this case, like, I actually really liked this part that she, where she talks about uh, Bill Gates specifically. Um, Gates's approach to the climate crisis uh, shares a fair amount with Branson's. She has a whole section on Richard Branson, which I actually found so enlightening. Sorry to interrupt my own quote. But she talks about Richard Branson as like, he came out as like this, this climate, he was the CEO of Virgin Airlines and he came out as this climate hero. He watched an inconvenient truth like with Al Gore and was like, oh my God, we need to save the planet. And then he spent the like the first little while, like kind of being really good about it. And then just went back to the status quo after what, like a year or two and all of the promises he made, like none of them happened. And I thought that was such a good example because she's like, Richard Branson is the climate billionaire and he hasn't done anything. So like, now what? And then you've got Bill Gates, uh, to go back to my quote, When Gates had his climate change epiphany, he too immediately raced to the prospect of a silver bullet techno fix in the future without pausing to consider viable, if economically challenging, responses in the here and now. In TED Talks, op-eds, interviews, and in his much-discussed annual letters, Gates repeats his call for governments to massively increase spending on research and development with the goal of uncovering energy miracles. By miracles, Gates means nuclear reactors that have yet to be invented, He means machines to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, He's a primary investor in at least one such prototype. And he means direct climate manipulation. He spent millions of his own money funding research into various schemes to block the sun. And his name is listed on several hurricane suppression patents. And it's like, this is nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many ways we could solve the problem. 
Like literally the pandemic showed us like the the environment started to recoup like within months of us shutting down for the pandemic. Within months. Yeah, but I mean these billionaires have a vested interest in preserving the economic status quo. So they're inherently limited to these techno fixes that really are not going to work, which I think the the movie Don't Look Up parodies pretty well. Oh, what a fun film. I should rewatch that. Maybe I will tonight. <laughs> <laughs> In the same chapter where she's talking about geoengineering, it's called Dimming the Sun. And I'm like, what a fun name for a chapter, like a Mr. Burns plot or something. Uh, she goes to a conference with a bunch of climate scientists who are like discussing this idea of geoengineering. And a lot of them are like, what? what? <laughs> like, this is, <laughs> this is a terrible idea. <laughs> and in a breakout group where they were supposed to like talk about how it's going to work and like how we could make this work, a participant flatly refuses to place his views on the triangle and instead helps himself to a large piece of poster paper. On it, he writes three questions in blue marker. Is the human that gave us the climate crisis capable of properly or safely regulating SRM, which is like... Solar radiation management, something like yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, good job, Kristen. Like, <laughs> you're so good at pop quizzes. Uh, his second question, in considering SRM regulation, are we not in danger of perpetuating the view that the Earth can be manipulated in our interests? And three, don't we have to engage with these questions before we place ourselves in the triangle <laughs> like, of, like <laughs> how to make it happen? <laughs> like, no one addressed this guy's things. <laughs> like, Those are all good questions. That are just not being asked. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> and actually, that's what I find so frightening. I mean, I think this is the, the case for a lot of what's in this book, but particularly the geoengineering chapter. She's predicting problems that could arise if we continue on the same path. And we're sort of living through the politics of that right now, because what we opted for was more incrementalism instead of the big solution she's talking about. And you can already see in real time these geoengineering questions popping up, because we have been having a pretty disastrous year around the planet for climate change. It's scaring a lot of people. So there's a real demand for solutions. There's nobody, I mean, there are people, but like the mainstream discourse is not really talking about ones that go outside of our current economic system. And so people are glomming on to these like science fiction solutions that carry very real risks. And I think we're not too far away from sort of a nation just deciding to geoengineer on their own or a private actor. I think it's coming right away. And it's really scary. So she's talking about, in her Dimming the Sun chapter, um, all of the different ways that geoengineering is really <laughs> some crazy fuckery. And uh, I like double underlined um, a head, like a subheading in this chapter that is just like, have we really tried plan A? <laughs> like, <laughs> no. Yeah, her subheading is, have we really tried plan A? And I've got like it starred and double underlined and highlighted. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, like... Maybe can we try plan A? Like, I don't. She goes on just under that subheading to say, like, there's no doubt that some of the people pushing geoengineering see these technologies not as emergency bridges away from fossil fuels, but as a means to keep the fossil fuel frenzy going for as long as possible. And that is terrifying. Like, how how is everybody not screaming right now? 
Speaking of everybody screaming, I actually really liked her chapter on blockadia, like what activists are kind of getting up to. I thought that was really valuable. By employing increasingly militant tactics like taking over offshore oil platforms, oil barges, and flow stations, this community-led resistance managed to shut down roughly 20 oil installations, significantly reducing production. And I'm like, I'm... This book is radicalizing me faster than any of the other ones we've read. I'm like, damn, I should go shut down some stuff. <laughs> like, It's getting to the point where I'm, I keep thinking back on, uh, this is probably like, I don't know, I'm thinking about the feminism movement of like when they were fighting to get the vote, how they were like blockading horses and stuff. And, I'm, and people died, but it, is that what it's going to take? Like, I don't know. Yeah, there's been a movement of, I think they might be called people over profit. I can't remember what the movement's called, but they're specifically targeting billionaires right now. And like, I don't think a lot of it isn't property destruction. They're just like trying to like, I don't know, get into their private estates and like ruin their day. I think. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I don't know. Direct action like that really seems to be the only approach that works. Have you read the book Hench? No, it's really good. I actually read it last week and it's about It's like told from the perspective of a henchman who works like at a temp agency and they get like loaned out to different bad guys and they have to fight like superheroes and stuff. And they're just, they're just like on the books. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. I'll lend it. I'll bring it when you come visit and I'll lend it to you. Uh, It's probably my favorite book I've read this year. And she does data entry. And so she ends up getting hired by like the supervillain, like the best supervillain. And her data entry, she starts using it to like undermine the superheroes like personal lives so like they hit all red lights when they're going somewhere or like their car's not ready their dry cleaning is late stuff like that just to like really bug them and she and she's she's doing it in a way where like she's messing with their relationships and it's very it reminded me very much of like the online tactics that are being used now um by certain firms and I'm like ooh should we get in there and uh Where's uh where's the hackers anonymous to like take down the billionaires home security and just like have it blasting the alarm all day or something like that, you know? Like <laughs> I think we're we're in an era where we're going to see a lot more direct action happening. And I think part of the challenge for the climate movement over the last 5 years has been trying to figure out what kind of direct action makes the most sense. So, you know, we've seen people getting arrested for road blockades and things like that. And sometimes, I mean, the, the like throwing food over the artwork was, is like a good example of like civil disobedience, but without like a direct connection. So I think the actions that are targeting billionaires a little bit more explicitly are going to, they're going to make the argument more effectively about like how really this is about equitable consumption um, and like resource hoarding is the fundamental problem that we're on a planet with finite resources and it is not okay for people to emit an entire country's worth of emissions on their fancy super yacht. It seems as though the climate movement is starting to get that. And at the same time, I, what I think is really exciting is civil disobedience movements that are in pursuit of something positive. Um, so the like the rise of sort of like guerrilla urbanism where they'll sort of like people will go out and build benches 
that are comfortable for people to sleep on. Or they'll put up road signs, like uh, they'll put up a yield sign somewhere where it needs one, or they'll paint a crosswalk on the street. Yeah, (laughs) people just like really being like the change that they want to see in the city. They're just going out and building it. I think that's so rad. I think the climate movement's figuring it out. Uh, So it'll be exciting to see what happens in the next few years. Yeah, well said. I really liked the section. I mean, I didn't like it. It really upset me. The section where she's talking about the Nigerian village who was trying to like protest against the oil company that was like destroying their land. Yeah, that was a story I didn't know. It was very upsetting. Yeah, I didn't know that story either. And it's crazy that I didn't know it because like in village after village, soldiers deployed by the state open fired on unarmed citizens. And this is a really good quote she says about like the the idea that they because the the protesters were using nonviolent uh, means like a lot of the people had previously worked for the oil company so they knew which valves to shut off so they would go go in and shut things down nobody was getting hurt but because Nigeria was relying so heavily on their oil expert exports the government just cracked down so brutally. Brutal events like these go a long way toward explaining why many young people in the Niger Delta today have lost their faith in nonviolence, and why, by 2006, the area was in the throes of a full-blown armed insurgency complete with bombings of oil infrastructure and government targets, rampant pipeline vandalism, ransom kidnapping of oil workers. Like, it just, it devolves so quickly. And I actually really like your point, Kristen, about, like, the nonviolent ways that we can just change the world. But it's also like the oil companies and the fossil fuel companies are so deeply seeded into our society that um, in some places that's just, I mean, this is from 2006, so hopefully things are a little bit better now. Um, but yeah, it's com- <laughs> it's complicated, I guess. <laughs> Look, Kyla, this is not our book club episode on how to blow up a pipeline, so... <laughs> We don't need to litigate whether civil disobedience works here, <laughs> but people should definitely read that book because I, I think it's one of, one of the most interesting books I've ever read. I, I'm going to read it this summer. I've set a goal for myself. <laughs> it's like not a big book, but I read Hench instead because I needed a fictional break. Oh, here's the thing I was talking about earlier. The democracy crisis, she calls it. Uh, After the province of Quebec successfully banned fracking, the U.S. incorporated oil and gas company Lone Pine Resources announced plans to sue Canada for at least $230 million under the North American Free Trade Agreement's rules on expropriation and fair and equitable treatment, which is like the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but also like how our system is set up and the way that like it's set up to fail even when people are trying to do good. Yeah, I mean, she makes the point that like the trade system is really, it's really set up to protect capital and it really makes it difficult for governments to regulate the environment. One I think really good example of that is asbestos. Um, There's a very famous trade case in which France bans asbestos and Canada's like, hey, that's (gasps) super bad for our business. You can't ban asbestos. Fortunately, in that case, the WTO was like, well, (laughs) kind of seems like this is poisonous and they can. But like in a lot of cases, it will be ruled. But what I might think of as like reasonable protections on health, safety and environment are ruled against the principles of international trade law. It's a real problem. Okay, we're near the end of the book. This is the last few like points that I mean, obviously, I loved everything. But these are the last few points I want to talk about, which is like. 
she does a really good job of putting a bow on the end of the book by talking about like, hey, we just spent 500 pages talking about all of the different ways we need to fundamentally change the society we live in and the economic structures that govern like the way we operate. And she goes, uh, I recognize that this sounds hard. But then she gives examples of like when it's happened in the past. And I really liked the example she gave of the movement for the abolition of slavery, um, which shows in particular that a transition as large as the one confronting us today has happened before. And indeed, it is remembered as one of the greatest moments in human history. And she goes on to like give like some examples of how it could have been done better, you know, like maybe instead of paying the slave owners to release their slaves, they could have given money to the people who had formerly been enslaved to make their lives. But like, I think I've probably talked about Thomas Piketty's um, capital and ideology in the past. But so the premise of the book is basically that like if you're looking at the arc of progress it really matters like what the ideologies around inequality are um, because every every regime that has an inequality in it, which is every regime that we've we've had so far, has ha- has been buttressed by these justifications. And when you break down the justifications, that's when you start to see systems change. There's a, like a really fascinating discussion in that book of the debates that were happening around the abolition of slavery and like really fucked up narratives that you're starting to see resurge, which really scares me in American politics. But these ideas that like, one of the ideas was like, you had to basically have a waiting period um, where slavery continued so that like slaves could learn the value of hard work. Um, (laughs) And these ideas that you needed to compensate. (laughs) I know, like things that like we look on, we look at now and we're like, well, that was fucked. Yeah. But those were like the justifications that, in a lot of cases, we're coming from like what you would recognize as like a center left progressive that was an abolitionist, but they wanted to do it slowly and they were sort of buying into right wing narratives. So whenever I think about policy problems that exist today, I, I think to myself, don't be that kind of slavery abolitionist because that's <laughs> fucked. <laughs> yeah, that's such a that's actually such a good place to end our like to kind of start to wrap up our discussion on that because th- that's ultimately what it all comes down to is like we're having a discussion about how we should fundamentally change our world and it's going to happen like climate change is happening currently and it's scaring a lot of people into as you said earlier Kristen fascism it's the alternative with the most voice right now. Like, it's not like the climate movement isn't doing a good job of getting out there. Um, I think we need more. We just need more. It needs more support from all over society. You know, I actually saw Naomi Klein speak. I was in Sydney, Australia. I was at the Sydney Opera House and I saw her and David Suzuki come to do like a lecture together. And I just remember thinking like, I think it was 2015. So it was like shortly after this book came out. And I can't believe I didn't just buy a copy. And I just, I was so inspired. I was so inspired when I saw them speak. And we just need more of that, right? And instead, what we have is a YouTube algorithm that slowly drives people into Jordan Peterson and then like deeper beyond that. And I'm trying to meet people where they're at and I'm finding a lot of success in that. And I really love that we've talked about like persuasion and deep canvassing before because I I mean, I just had brunch today with somebody that I'm trying to like be friends with. Um, I was like, oh, let's go for brunch. And she was like, 
I can't, I'm just one person. What am I supposed to do? So I'm just, I'm spending this, actually, she's already read this book. So like, just to give her a pass, she's very like keyed into the climate crisis, but she's taking the summer off and she's not like looking at any climate like problems because she's just exhausted and she feels alone. A lot of people feel that way. Yeah. And I feel like I'm, I'm sailing a sinking ship, right? Like, I feel like the band on the Titanic that's just like, let's keep playing, boys. But it it's different because, like, we're not doomed yet. You know what I mean? Like, I cannot keep going to work in a system that is extractive and knowing that I'm participating in what's ultimately going, like, destroying not only the planet, but, like, the lives of people who are suffering when I buy something new or when I help, uh, like I'm working in the travel industry. So when I help somebody go on a vacation and they have to emit like a trillion tons of carbon to fly over to Canada from Europe or wherever, right? So I just can't participate anymore. And I think it's frustrating because it took me like three and a half, four, four years actually now, Kristen, happy anniversary. <laughs> it's four years this month since we like, like our brainchild uh, for the podcast started. But it's taken like four years for me to get to the point where I'm like, I need to be doing more. But I think because I'm making an effort to make lots of friends, if I start, I can kind of guide them along with me. So fingers crossed that that's that's where I'm headed in my life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the way you're feeling is the way that a lot of people are feeling, right? We're in this situation where there's more uncertainty and there's every year it seems like governments do less to help people. And they're more interested in blaming other politicians, blaming other people, blaming other levels of government for the problems instead of trying to solve them. At the same time, it really feels like as an individual, it's it's harder to even survive. Um, there's way more uncertainty now. So a lot of people feel really disempowered. A lot of people feel really mistrustful of government. And it's a really dangerous spot to be in. But on the other hand, I think that makes the conditions really ripe for what Naomi Klein talks about in terms of these like moments of upswell where you can get transformative change that happens in an instant. And we missed that opportunity with COVID-19. You know, there, there were actually proposals for there to be a universal basic income during that time, and it didn't happen. But that boy, would that have changed the world. But Moments like that are going are gonna to continue coming. I think the problem right now is there's, there's the conditions for there to want to be change, right? The healthcare crisis is one. The housing crisis is one. Like the various wildfires and tornadoes and floods and, you know, you name it. The conditions are there. People want change. But what's necessary is for there to be some kind of leader that espouses that sort of wide-ranging optimism. And the fact that you're not getting that, I mean, in, in the United States, there's like a really interesting poll that came out recently that looked at like, it looked at support for political party leaders. But one of the areas that's been highlighted is that Joseph, like Joe Biden has like really low levels of support among young people. And a fair number of young Democratic voters are looking at alternatives like RFK Jr. and like Marianne Williamson. Oh, no. Both of those people are problematic. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> oh, no. I think it speaks to this like sense that politically engaged young people are looking for literally anywhere to go because Joe Biden's administration keeps approving new oil projects. And 
like people really aren't feeling represented. They're not feeling like this crisis is being addressed to nearly the extent that it needs to. Somebody has to put forward progressive solutions that actually meet the moment. And as long as our political leaders are sort of mired in these solutions where we'll like cut plastic bags by 4% in 10 years. (laughs) Oh my God. You know, shit like that. (laughs) Like that lack of ambition is not going to appeal to anybody. So like you are going to lose to the right and it is going to be terrifying. So please. (laughs) (laughs) Someone give us someone to vote for. Honestly. (laughs) Fine, Kristen. You and I should do a joint campaign for prime minister. (laughs) Kristen and Kyla, 2026? I don't know. Probably 2025 sometime. But having said that, no. (laughs) (laughs) But I actually, like, I because I'm feeling so disempowered and I don't have anyone to turn to, it's been really interesting to see, like, because I, like, have had, like, a PhD doctorate teaching me how to do social change for, like, four years. So now I'm like, oh, like... I'll just do some stuff. I'll just do it. I send I send letters all the time to my politicians and also to the companies that I like that are doing good work. I sent a letter to one of my newsletters recently to be like, hey, I like how much climate change stuff you've been including. Like stuff like that. I just, I'm trying to engage and I want to do more. That's that's all. And uh and I think it's hard if you're if you don't know what to do. So I'll just take my friends. So if anybody wants help, just I don't know, hit me up. <laughs> Yeah, I, lo- I think that's a great thing to end on. You know, if, if you're somebody that's feeling really scared and disempowered, I mean, what this book argues for is building social movements. So either join a social movement for climate change. And, you know, if you're not sure how to get started and there's not a movement in your community, the Climate Justice Organizing Hub, which we're partnering with soon, has a lot of really good resources for you. But you know what you could also do is just write your representative and tell them about your concerns and ask for things like a universal basic income to solve the climate crisis. Yeah. And I don't know if this is like sinister, but I've been making a point to like make a lot of friends this year. Like go make friends. Like I joined an improv class because I was like, I just want to make friends. We cannot have like social change if we don't know each other. I wrote notes. I moved into a new building and I wrote like lovely little notes to my neighbors with my phone number. Um, Just get to know your neighbors. Go make friends. Go make friends. That's so much. It's good for you in so many other ways. But then you have like people you can invite to a protest because it's scary to go alone. And then you send the message to your group chat of 12 people. One of them will say yes. You guys will go have a blast. The next time one happens, maybe a third person says yes. And on and on, right? Like it's slow. It takes time, but you have to start. So start by making friends, go to a pottery class where you have to like talk to strangers or whatever. But like, (laughs) it doesn't have to be the climate movement. If that's too hard right now, just like, we're all so lonely. We don't know each other. Go make friends. That's, that's my call to action this week. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Uh, Any final thoughts on the book, Kristen? I mean, Naomi Klein is a fantastic writer, and she is also a really expansive thinker. This Changes Everything is a fantastic book, and it is, I think it it's both really wide-ranging and and also like really neat, and it has like a central thesis that you can hang on. So I would say, you know, read this book 
Or if you want to read like On Fire or some of her more recent stuff. And yeah, go make friends. That sounds fun. (laughs) (laughs) Go make friends and then bring them to a climate protest. (laughs) Yeah. But like it's got to be subversive because like not everyone's ready to go to a climate protest. You just make friends, you know, hang out with them in like normal ways and then be like, hey, I'm going to this climate. I do that to my friends all the time. (laughs) And now I'm like, hey, guys, do you want (laughs) to let's go do something. So our next episode is actually going to be an interview with Naomi Klein's brother, Seth Klein, who has also written a climate change book. Uh, His book is called A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency. And it's basically all about, you know, the expansive ways that we can actually organize society to get shit done when we make that a priority and that we should make that a priority. Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows on harbingermedianetwork.com. I've actually been listening to Canada Reimagined, which is a new show that we've just started um, getting on our network. And it's it's like 15 minute episodes about just like all of the small ways that we could change our society to be a little bit better. And I actually, I love it. I love it. I love that it's 15 minutes long, little little bite-sized ways to change. Uh, the host has a really lovely voice. It's very soothing. So everyone should should go check that out. And uh, we'll catch you on the next uh, the next episode. <laughs>